Okay, but serious, legitimate question for you, Steve, which is, do you assume that by default the trains are or are not on fire? I mean, I guess most of the time I assume that there's a more benign explanation for the delays. Do you carry a fire extinguisher? I know you're very concerned with fire safety in general, so... I should. Shouldn't I? You know, in case something goes wrong with the brakes. I mean, couldn't hurt. Today on the horse race, we're facing some MBTA train delays. Excuse me, racetrack obstructions. Once we sort that out, it's off to Iowa for our By the Numbers segment on this week's caucuses. And finally, a deep look at who is paying just how much in state taxes here in Massachusetts. It's Thursday, January 18th. The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies, Boston's leading public affairs and public relations consulting firm. To learn more, connect with Benchmark on LinkedIn at Benchmark Strategies or visit benchmark-strategies.com. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. And as we get on track to discuss some serious things, thank goodness we're doing it remotely because, wow, the MBTA is having a day. Steve. Steve, I briefly considered, not like really, but I briefly considered maybe for 30 seconds uh, trying to see what the red line looked like today. And fortunately, Every single news organization's feed that I opened up this morning let me know that that was a terrible idea. And then we went over to Twitter and it was an even worse idea. Steve, what did you see when you opened the tweets today? I mean, I wasn't, admittedly, wasn't really planning on going in anyway, but I am glad for that because I am planning on going in both tomorrow and the next day. And you open it up and Adam Gaffin's tweeting, today's meltdown on the red and orange lines was brought to you by a fire in an electrical substation at Downtown Crossing. So as he puts it, at least it wasn't because the MBTA can't handle the snow. Yay? <laughs> That's his tweet. Ah, uh, there... I'm literally just like 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 panting, exhausted, furious at the state of transit here uh, because they're going to have to set that, I guess, days without fire counter back to zero after Tuesday morning. And it I think that counter only has single digits on it. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> like, I think it's there's not like the two sets of numbers where you can flip over to 10. Yeah, that's like an upgrade. It's actually just like a toddler who's learning to count to five that just starts counting one finger at a time and they just can't get beyond a hand. <laughs> they got to reset the whole thing. It is a bummer, I think, in seriousness, because, you know, there was some air of optimism, I'd say, even a week ago or so. Stuff was getting fixed. We we're announcing slow zones ending. There were even some optimistic op-eds being written about, you know, maybe the T is headed in the right direction. And maybe it still is, but today's not a good day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was quote unquote electrical problems in smoke at Downtown Crossing. And you do just run into this problem with if anything goes wrong at Downtown Crossing, that takes out two train lines, essentially. So it grinds it to a halt. The green line was already kind of eh, 
Um, so now there's shuttles from Back Bay to the North Station. There are shuttles from JFK to Harvard. Green Line downtown was already shuttles for planned repairs. So uh, started this week was just a welcome back from the long weekend. I hope you didn't need to get anywhere in downtown Boston today. And again, you know, to your point, Steve, my exasperation is because like it did feel really good last week for me to just hop on the red line and just zoom downtown. Got from my place to go see a movie at the downtown theater. No big problem at all. And so it's uh, it just feels like the rug is being constantly yanked out from under me as someone who would love to ride on a train if it would just run. That's actually a very interesting point because a couple of people, more than a couple of people have asked, you know, Steve, why do you hate the tea so much? It's like, I don't hate the tea. I love the tea. I love the I tea. I need the tea. I love it. <laughs> I root for the tea. And it makes me sad. Yeah. It makes me sad deep inside <laughs> when it doesn't work. <laughs> so anyway, oh, I, no. I, I don't. I, do not. I love the tea. I want it to work. I need it. I will ride it. I will always ride it. But it would be nice if, you know, the percentage of time on fire were a little bit lower. Just a hair. Just an absolute hair. Well, I mean, look, we know to expect delays wherever we're going in Boston. But where are we going on this podcast? So we're, we're not asking why we're here. We're asking where we're going. That's the, that's the new segment. I thought that was maybe a loophole. I think we can maybe get past uh, the existential crisis by asking, can we look into the future? I like that. Well, the answer to that, Jen, where we're going is first we're going to Iowa, which is quite a long train ride from what I gather. They had their caucuses this week and we're digging into the numbers on what happened and what it could potentially mean for the track ahead. And then we're going to get back on the train for another very long train ride back here to Massachusetts to talk about a very interesting article that you wrote for Commonwealth Beacon about who pays how much in taxes. So shall we get on the train and head to Iowa? I mean, honestly, let's book the next 24 hours in on some train rides. Let's go. This week's By the Numbers, it turns out, are not looking at train schedules. Are they delayed? How many trains are there? What percentage of the track is on fire? Instead, we're going to be looking at Steve's favorite numbers in the entire world, polling numbers. We're going to get a little bit more specific than that and say we're looking at polling numbers in Iowa because, Steve, there was an election there on Monday. There was an election there on Monday. It was the Iowa caucuses, which kicks off the presidential caucus and primary schedule for 2024. Kind of snuck up on me, to be honest, just because, you know, there was less coverage of it this time around. The results weren't really in very much doubt. Some, you know, shades of who might do a little bit better or worse might have been in some doubt. But, you know, the expectation pretty much was that Donald Trump was going to win by a lot, which, spoiler alert, is in fact what happened. I'd like to refer to maybe one of my favorite recurrent jokes on whatever social media platform you happen to be on whenever there is an election, which is uh, just telling us what the weather is and then saying, hear me out, this might just come down to turnout. Steve, you want to tell me about turnout? Did it come down to turnout? It did not come down to turnout. Turnout did come down, actually, but the results did not come down to turnout. Um, turnout was actually down a bit. We had about 110,000 voters participating this year, which is pretty low. In 2016, when it was you know Trump's first go around and there was a quite large field at that point, there were about 187,000 voters in that election. But it wasn't even just that. It wasn't you know Trump's first election and the big field or anything, because in 2012, there were also 122,000 voters. So the fact that it was now down to 110 
it was a low turnout affair. We don't exactly know why. There are some possible explanations that are floating around out there. One of them was that it was super cold and super snowy this week. So, you know, even the act of getting to the caucuses was more difficult than it's been in the past. Also, you know, maybe it was something to do with inevitability where the polls showed Donald Trump winning by quite a bit. Well, let's actually look at that turnout. And then we're going to talk about how our favorite fortune tellers, uh, pollsters, uh, did in actually figuring out how this was going to go. I know, not fortune tellers, merely psychics. So Donald Trump, uh, former president running again, uh, really handily won the Iowa Republican caucus with about 51% of the vote, which gives him 20 delegates heading into the election here. Uh, There was a little bit of question going into this about whether or not Nikki Haley, who seemed to be on a bit of an upswing really in recent months, was going to be taking kind of the, the second place crown from uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, Turned out Ron kept it by all of about a point. He got 21.2% of the vote, and Nikki Haley got 19.1%. So really kind of what we might have expected if you'd asked us a while ago. Uh, But DeSantis outperformed, I guess, what the expectation had been, uh, that he was sort of losing momentum or losing steam, and Nikki Haley was really kind of like charging in. And part of that, of course, comes from punditry sort of wanting some exciting change-ups to happen. But ultimately, Steve, how'd you feel about where we ended up? Yeah, I have to discount what I'm about to say by saying that both of them finished 30 points behind Donald Trump. So in some sense, the contest that we've all been closely watching, the DeSantis versus Nikki Haley contest, if that is one that you've been closely watching, was sort of like if one horse is all the way around the track and already and the other two are just, you know, sort of maybe halfway down the backstretch. So there's a few... (laughs) A few horse metaphors for you, Lisa Kaczynski, you're welcome. I have to interrupt you on this one because our household has been watching uh, auto racing products, movies, content lately. So we watched Ferrari, and then right after that, we did a double feature of Ford v. Ferrari. So when you said halfway around the track, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to end in a fiery crash. But it didn't. It ended in like sort of a shrug, right? I um, am, first of all, amazed by all of the like Formula One, how that's become a thing now. Um, I'm not on that train yet. Maybe I'll get there. Not opposed to it. Just not there yet. (laughs) I don't think there are trains involved, Steve. That's true. Fair. I'm not in the car. I'm not, I don't know what the metaphor is. Anyway, you're correct. Ron DeSantis did narrowly edge out Nikki Haley. There's possible reasons for this that could, you, you could, you know, say are good for either one. One is, you know, Nikki Haley didn't really campaign in Iowa. So, you know, coming in a close third, I guess, could be seen as good for her. She now heads to New Hampshire. They all now head to New Hampshire, which is a state which in theory should be much better for Nikki Haley, just based on who the electorate is there. You know, but Ron DeSantis did come in second and his camp needs something to be excited about. Then you could say, okay, well, this was really a two-person race to the extent that getting smoked by 30 points makes it a two-person race. What was your take on the age breakdowns, which were really, really interesting? Like, it did seem to me kind of at first look like Donald Trump is running on an older electorate base. If this was a younger voting body, it might have actually been more competitive. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the deal with primaries in general, which is, you know, you often have younger voters who are into somebody else, but they almost never make up a large enough share of the electorate to really do anything about it. So it was quite interesting looking at the entrance polls, which you alluded to. Um, You know, these are, of course, surveys that are done of folks that are, you know, walking into the caucus building. Exit polls then are done often by, you know, either some telephone polling and then some literally talking to people as they come out of the ballot um, in some cases. But in this case, what these polls of actual voters found was that Donald Trump actually only got 22% of the vote among those under 30. So that's, you know, much less than the the outright majorities that he got of voters who are over age 45, um, and even more so voters over age 65. So very interesting result there. But again, just younger voters don't make up a large enough portion of the electorate. So if you're counting on them to win a primary, it's, you know, you're bound for disappointment, I'm afraid. You also saw similar splits when it comes to ideology and also education, where uh, we'll get to education last. But I I did want to note that the ideology portion is interesting to me in connection with the age question, because in both of those, the smallest block. So so moderate and liberal uh, voters, for instance, were only 11% of the overall voting block in the caucuses. And uh, those under 30s were only 9% of voters who were voting in that caucus. And they tended to go for either DeSantis or Haley. The moderates to liberals overwhelmingly went for Haley. So how are you thinking about those sort of divides where there's like a very clear kind of cut if you're looking at younger voters, if you're maybe thinking about general election voters, but they're barely anybody in the primary. So it might mean that you just have, for instance, a candidate that appeals as usual more firmly toward one side of the party, but then gets weaker when you look at more of the middle mush of America. Yeah, and we should also note that, you know, looking at those younger voters, Ramaswamy actually did reasonably well there too, you know, particularly among the 9% of voters under age 30. So the question really for Haley, which you kind of outlined there, is as they move on to states with at least some more of these moderate voters, is it enough? And are the people who call themselves somewhat conservative more open to her, you know, her appeal? So the obvious place to look is New Hampshire. It's next. There are many more moderate voters there than there are in Iowa. Um, Looking back to 2016, which was, of course, the last time that there were competitive contests in both places, there were 27% in New Hampshire who described themselves as either moderate or liberal, and that compares to 15% in Iowa. However, 27% is still not very many when that's the um, kind of set of voters that she won in Iowa and the set of voters that I think she's counting on to to win in New Hampshire. So she's definitely going to have to take off a bigger chunk, you know, further over to the right end of the spectrum. She has been campaigning there a lot. So, you know, that's really the question is whether or not she can carve out a bigger piece of the of the pie for herself. Well, Steve, thinking about that pie, how we thought about it as it raced toward us, how we're thinking about it now, did it look about the proportions that you were expecting? How were the pollsters? Do you all need to quit? Uh, we don't need to quit. There's always, you know, polls and peril takes. Did the pollsters learn from the last election? <laughs> That's one of the articles that gets written pretty much all the time, every election, every once a year, a couple times a year. And the answer is always beats me. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Did we? Because nobody really knows. It's like, did you overcorrect? 
Did you not correct enough? Did you learn the right lessons? Did you learn any lessons? Were there any lessons? Nobody knows. So, you know, the thing that pollsters that have polls at stake, have polls that have just come out, feel at that moment, I think, is a sheer sense of professional existential terror. And, you know, it's like you are out in the public square, the numbers are flashing behind you, and people are just standing there with ripe tomatoes just waiting to pelt you. Um, (laughs) But in this case, everybody held on to their tomatoes because the polls actually were pretty close to what the final results were. So with a primary, if you're showing the rough contours of the race and you're within, you know, a handful of points of the final outcome, then that's what you should you should be happy about that. And basically where the polls came down uh, were pretty much that the polls showed that Donald Trump was going to win by something like 30, maybe a little bit more than 30 or so. And that is, in fact, what happened. They did actually underestimate the DeSantis vote by a little bit. But when you're looking at, you know, did they set the right expectation? Yes. Was the margin about right? Yes. You know, and it's a primary where you expect errors to be larger. So I think overall, um, this is a night that pollsters, the pollsters who did have polls that were done in Iowa, which we did not, they should be happy about it. And, you know, from what I'm seeing on Twitter, they are happy about it. So thinking about going forward from here, you know, from a polling perspective, as we talked about before, it's a bit easier to poll a primary than it is to poll a caucus. Caucuses are a little bit tricky. The GOP still has nine caucuses left to go. But as always, we ask the question about, uh, well, why why this state? Why does this state get to go first? Why is this state so outsized in its influence? A note from the New York Times, in the seven contested Republican races since 1980, only two winners in Iowa have actually ended up capturing the party's nomination. So that was Bob Dole and George W. Bush. So congratulations to Donald Trump. I don't know what that means going forward. I have no idea. Yeah. That's a tough one. That That's a tough one because that's, that's definitely there. And of course, Dole did not then go on to become president. Um, but, you know, Trump is an asterisk in that because he is sort of an incumbent, like he sort of, you know, is running for reelection in a way, I guess. Um, so it doesn't really fit in perfectly to, to the overall trend. I mean, the point that they're making, which is correct, is that Iowa voters in general don't really do a very good job of picking Republicans who are, you know, palatable to the to the broader party. However, in this case, it's Trump and the party as a whole has, um, you know, moved already picked him. Yeah, they've picked him already. And they've also moved to a different place than where they were before when, you know, Rick Santorum won and the party's like, are you kidding? We don't want that guy or Ted Cruz won and then just, you know, immediately drove off into the right edge of the map. You know, this is different than that. So probably the closest parallel this time is Ron DeSantis, actually, because if he had won, he'd be another example of a very conservative candidate that almost definitely wasn't going to win the nomination. You know, but now I think the party is much more united around what Trump represents. Well, all right. It's on to New Hampshire next week. You may or may not hear from me. I'll be in the wilds of Utah, unlike Lisa, in the wilds of, hey, 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 you guessed it, New Hampshire. But Steve, you will be here to shepherd us through whatever ends up happening. All right. Last week, we looked at Massachusetts's S surplus and tax revenue shortfall, which has people asking if rich people are leaving the state or otherwise avoiding taxes here. But there's a new report looking at the state and local tax burden on everyone else. And here to break it down is our Death and Taxes Bureau Chief, Jennifer Smith. Jen, uh, thanks for coming to the bunker from 
the Death and Taxes Bureau, we have one of those? Is that something we have? We, we do, and our seal is a raven sitting on a stack of gold bars. So there's no horses there, nothing to be seen, but there is a good sense of menace and money, which is what we're going for. Okay, Jen, well, you wrote this very interesting article, and everyone should go check it out at commonwealthbeacon.org. And basically what it was looking at is the question of basically who's footing the bill. How does that break down, particularly across income brackets? So if you make a little money, how many taxes are you paying? If you make a lot of money, how many taxes are paying? Are you paying? So give us the 30,000 foot view. What did, what did the analysis find? So the 30,000 foot view basically looks at all of the different states and the specific state and local tax burdens here. So federal taxes are a whole other mess. We'll get to that in a little bit. But this was specifically saying, what does a state think that you should pay depending on your income bracket? And uh, Massachusetts, for good or for ill, depending on which side of the financial uh, political spectrum that you're on, has actually leapt up in the rankings. It leapt up 10 spots since last time. This is the seventh annual Who Pays report from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy that's D.C.-based. And so Massachusetts basically sprung up over the course of this last year to the eighth most progressive, and we'll talk about that in a second too, but the eighth most progressive tax system, uh, which puts it basically right up near this sort of unique handful of states. And it's almost entirely because of the fair share amendment or the millionaire's tax that was passed last year. So that one change alone pretty much vaulted us up into this sort of top tier group of states that approaches what would be called essentially a progressive taxation system on the state level. And just to clarify for people who may not follow tax policy as closely as we do, uh, progressive tax system, of course, refers to the idea that people who make more money should pay a higher percentage of that money than, than do people who make less money. Um, that's what we're referring to when we say progressive has nothing to do with sort of progressive versus conservative. It's just a definition of how taxes are kind of allocated. Um, so with that definition in mind, Jen, how is this report measuring what is a progressive tax system and what is not? That's a great question. So yes, think of it as the poll between progressive, which is kind of a bar chart that slowly moves up as you make more money, the amount of your income that you are spending on taxes. So what you are spending on state and local taxes should also go up if it's a progressive system. And if it's a regressive system, then it means that the highest part of that bar chart is off to the left. You make the least amount of money, and yet you are paying the highest percentage of your income toward taxes. So there are different groups that measure this in different ways. For instance, if you think about the Mass Taxpayers Foundation, they tend to measure it in per capita taxes. So, you know, how much are people paying on average on their taxes? But if you're looking at the way that ITEP does it, it's specifically saying if you only have X much money, how much of the money that you're bringing in then has to go back out to state and local taxes. So that's the that's kind of the sense of it right now. One note here that's really interesting is even though Massachusetts jumped up a lot of spaces, it's not actually a fully true progressive tax system. And that's because what you would call the um, top 4% of income earners actually pay the lowest percentage of their income in taxes. It bounces back up when you go up to the top 1%, but there's that weird little section up at the kind of top income section of Massachusetts taxpayers that actually pay a smaller percentage of their taxes than anybody else. 
Yeah, that was an interesting chart that was included in the report. And what I conjecture, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that 4% basically ends at a million dollars. So if you don't make enough income that any of it is subject to the millionaire's tax, then your tax rate is still kind of going down from what it would be for lower income people. But then if you make over a million dollars, then suddenly you have this 4% surcharge. Is that why you have to basically be over that million dollar threshold before you're back to looking like a progressive tax system? Yeah, that's actually a really great point because what you see when you're looking at this chart and uh, nobody loves anything more than a podcaster describing charts. Uh, I perform it in charades, but that also wouldn't do anything for you listening to this podcast is you start to see something where, you know, it looks like it's on the lower side, the lowest 20% pay about 8.2% of their income to taxes. And then it starts to climb as it starts to move up the income scale. Uh, and then you see a dip as you start entering the top 20%. It drops back down again. So if you didn't have the millionaire's tax, if you didn't have the fair share amendment, it's a pretty safe bet that it would continue to decline after that. But we have the millionaire's tax, hence the jump in progressive stature, and uh, hence the kind of weird wobble that's happening at the upper end of our tax income brackets. Okay, so let's talk about some of the other states that are at either end of the spectrum, because I think that will help us frame the conversation about what it means and what both Massachusetts and these other two sets of states should be taking from this. So starting with who else is with us at this end of the spectrum, basically meaning that the tax system is more progressive, what other states are on this end of the list? Sure, so the top one isn't a state at all. It's actually DC. Uh, and they are actually at the highest level of a progressive tax system. So they're kind of all on their own up there. They're a full, you know, half a percentage point higher on this progressivism scale than everyone else. And that's because they have basically five out of five of the factors that ITEP is measuring here. So it's higher income tax brackets for those upper incomes, basically an absence of broad preferences for capital gains for or business income. So some of those big things that kind of high earners or corporations really value uh, is that preference toward those taxable assets. There's a high reliance on income taxes, which again kind of levels out that spectrum. There's a presence of refundable credits, and there's a low reliance on sales and excise taxes. So I'm going to dwell on that last one for just a second here, because one of the things that makes a state like Florida so interesting to kind of pivot over to the exact opposite end is they don't have income tax in Florida. What they do have are sales taxes. And so that means that the very, very wealthy are not being taxed on that income that they're bringing in. So it makes a lot of sense that if you're at a lower level, even if you're getting taxed less, when that comes from things like sales taxes or property taxes, you're going to be putting in a bigger proportion of your income toward those expenses just because you have so much less to bring in and throw around and you're not being taxed proportionately with what you're bringing in. So Massachusetts is up there with this big group of folks uh, that are kind of, you know, closer to a progressive scale technically, but what ITAP does point out is none of these look like really steep progressive tax systems. Like most of them are pretty gentle slants with the opposite of regressive tax systems, some of them being really, really, really dramatic charts and really dramatic differences between the income brackets. Like Florida, if you're in the lowest income bracket, you are going to be paying about five times as much a proportion of your income toward taxes as the top 1%. 
You mentioned sales tax, and that is one that's interesting and perhaps not intuitive. Um, but basically, the idea there is that if you make, say, $50,000 and you spend $200 a week on groceries for your family, then you know, you're paying sales tax on that. And if you make a million dollars and you spend $200 a week on groceries for your family, you're still paying the same amount of taxes. But that amount, those amounts that you're spending on stuff represent such a vastly smaller portion of your income that you know, that that little bit of sales tax makes just a much, much, much less of a difference to you if you have a higher income. So that's why, you know, relying more on sales taxes uh, makes your system more aggressive. And also why when you hear politicians talk about flat taxes or fair taxes, it is in no sense fair in no sense really flat. It, it really does hit uh, lower income people much, much more. Yeah, well, I'm really glad you raised that point, too, because one thing that the folks who wrote the report agree on and other kind of, you know, more conservative or moderate tax folks agree on is that there are different definitions of fair and how you define fair is going to basically influence where you want to live or where you're kind of advocating for changes in tax policy. If you think fair means if you make more than you pay more, then you know, Massachusetts is not doing too terribly there. But if your interpretation of it is that everybody should basically spend the same amount on taxes, regardless of, you know, how much money they make, then suddenly Massachusetts, because of the fair share amendment, because of the millionaire's tax, suddenly looks all out of whack. So your definition of fair is going to impact how you interpret this data. And that's a that's a much more balanced way than what I said it, Jen. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm professionally obligated, Steve. <laughs> so then looking at uh, where Massachusetts sits and what this report says about our comparison to other states and thinking about this whole idea of competitiveness that we spend so much time thinking about and talking about as a state, what does this all mean for Massachusetts in terms of what we should be doing? So I love this question. I don't have a great answer to this question, but I love it anyway, because it gets to the the thorniness of this issue. What the ITEP folks were touting essentially, and also places like mass budget, so more left-leaning organizations will say, is actually if you're anything other than kind of the top of the top in Massachusetts, you're paying a smaller proportion of your income to taxes here than you are in most other places. So I think it's basically the middle 60% of tax filers in Massachusetts pay a lower share of their income than people in the middle 60% of 32 other states. For the bottom 40%, you're paying less of your income toward taxes than comparable filers in 37 other states. So the idea is if you're below that kind of top threshold, Massachusetts is asking you to pay less of your income towards state and local taxes. On the other side, uh, it's kind of inarguable that Florida and Texas and similar tax systems do prioritize, ultimately, not adding on an additional levy based on income into their state taxes. So if you're looking at it from a state-to-state tax comparison, then you can really see the case for the argument, oh gosh, Massachusetts is not being competitive. But one thing that's very interesting to me that came up in conversations while I was reporting this out is there's also a lot of disagreement about how state taxes are supposed to be incorporated into this sort of holistic tax picture. The federal government is where most of your taxes go, and there's still a lot of disagreement about whether or not federal tax systems are kind of progressive. If they're progressive by nature, if like 90% of the taxes that you're paying are going to the federal government, 
is the role of state taxes to basically try and offset that, to jockey amongst ourselves, to make the case that we're most attractive, most competitive to wealthier people, to businesses, or is there a way to try and make the case that there's a competitive advantage to most people, to almost everybody in the state saying, Everybody's got to kind of pay the same level of federal tax, but if you're in Massachusetts and you're below that 80th percentile, you're doing better here than you are in other places. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, the only problem is you may be paying less in taxes, but you also might have nowhere to live uh, and you might not have trains that work. So all of this has to be kind of taken with a grain of salt in this big pile of soup, pasta, whatever jumbled stew nonsense uh, metaphor you want to go with. Uh, taxes are only part of the picture, and state taxes are also only part of the picture. So much to think about when it comes to competitiveness. Very interesting article. Again, folks should go over to commonwealthbeacon.org and take a look at it. See where you sit on those on those charts and you know think about what you think Massachusetts should do. And that brings us to our final segment, which this week comes to us from our nightmare fuel department here at Horse Race Global Media Empire headquarters. Jen, I gather that there are gigantic floating clown heads appearing over downtown Boston. I mean, I don't even know what the question is. I like that you guessed. <laughs> I, I like that you said, I gather. I, I, I expect. I guessed based on the fact that it says so in the script. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen the terrifying pictures on Twitter or whatever it's called now. They are terrifying. And for the record, for our listeners, there is disagreement inside the podcast virtual bunker here. Steve and I are very, very afraid of this exhibit called Endgame, which is even more terrifying. Right. Way to set people's mind at ease yeah. there with calling the giant floating clown heads Endgame. Yeah, very normal, no fear, definitely no chills anywhere. Our producer, John, insanely, insanely thinks this is good art. And I just can't, I can't understand it. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit worried, but I just did want to get that on the record. Uh, the giant, giant clown heads um, are part of a 19-piece exhibit called Winter Active from the Downtown Boston Business Improvement District. So you might also see a very beautiful whale downtown just looking looking peaceful and wintry and not like it's going to pop up outside your window in the middle of the night and eat you whole but um i guess i guess we also have clown heads steve yeah they, they kind of look like um for those who haven't seen them first of all go on twitter and look at them because they're terrifying yeah um, they look like huge mylar balloons that like, you know, kids used to release back in the 1980s at birthday parties before we realized that that was a terrible thing to do for the environment. Um, but that, that somehow they had been released and gotten stuck between two buildings. And now they're just like, they're sort of grinning maliciously at us waiting to eat us, you know, in the middle of the night or something like that. So the artist told deeply beloved friend of the pod, Axios' Steph Solis, that he thinks that clown heads are maybe like an advertising campaign that's gone wrong, that's blown off course, it's stuck somewhere. Uh, this is the quote that really killed me, which is, the look I was going for was just sort of alarmed and stunned and shocked by the condition that they're in. So Success. please Check. count me, Jennifer Smith, <laughs> and you, Steve Cazella, alarmed and stunned and shocked. Yeah, I'd say mission accomplished there, so good job. 
Anyhow, that is all the time we have for today. I'm Steve Gazella signing off with Jen Smith. Our producer, as always, is the great John Gee. You can write to us at thehorseracepodcast at gmail.com if you notice any terrifying clown visages floating over your home. Don't forget to give the Horse Race a review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to the Massachusetts Politico Playbook and Commonwealth Beacon's Daily Download and reach out to us here at the Massing Polling Group if you need polls or focus groups done. For now, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.